been said already, today we're going to be speaking uh, about lenses. We all have these different lenses through which we view certain things, and of course I'm not talking about purely the literal sense of, uh, of glasses and eyes, uh, but rather we all view the world through certain perspectives, which gives us certain biases uh, and opinions based on uh, what our lens has been through uh, throughout our life. Uh, over the past several years, there have been some images that have popped up on, uh, on social media, um, which have caused division for people depending on what someone's lens is. So let's take a look at some of these, uh, at some of these images that uh, might be different depending on what your lens is. Let's go to the first one right there. Uh, put up your hand. This is, you need to go with your very first reaction. Who here sees a young lady with her head turned? Who here sees an older lady? Oh, not many people at the moment see, a, uh, see an older person. Um, this image is called my wife and my mother-in-law. Uh, and what you see initially is dependent on uh, through, the view, uh, through the lens that you view it. Uh, following a study of 400 adults aged 18 to 70, uh, re researchers discovered that it was older people who were more likely to see the, uh, the older woman in this image. So apparently there's no older people here uh, today, while younger people were more likely to see the younger lady. Is everyone able to see both images now after looking at this for, for a while? Maybe not. Maybe you only have one specific lens through which you can see uh, certain things. Let's go to the next one. Let's go to the next image. There we go. Who here sees a duck initially? And who here sees a rabbit initially? We are duck people here in the, uh, in the room mostly, it seems. Let's go to, the, uh, go to the next one. This is a bit of an easier one. Who here initially sees a vase? Who sees two faces? Oh, two faces kind of people in the room right now. I'm a vase kind of person myself. Now, the next image, I just need to let you know, caused a great amount of division in my household between me and my wife. Uh, can we go to the next one, please, Lynn? This is a little bit more uh, divisive. You will either see a white and gold dress or you will see a black and blue dress. So who are the white and gold people? Who are the black and blue people? Okay, we are about half-half. I'm white and gold and my wife is black and blue. I don't know what that says about our, uh, about our personalities. Apparently, the, uh, the reason that we can see different things in this image in particular has to do with how light enters, the, uh, enters our eyes. I explain why people see different colours. The next image as well, once again, caused division in our, uh, in our household, and I couldn't understand how my wife saw what she saw. Let's go to the next image, please, Lynn. So who here sees a green and grey shoe? And who here sees a pink and white shoe? There you go. I could only see a green and gray shoe. I can't see a pink and a white shoe at all. Apparently, the, uh, the original color of the shoe is actually pink and white, but my lens seems to be, uh, seems to be incapable of, uh, of seeing that. Maybe this has caused some division within the people that you're sitting with right now as well. Uh, that's a conversation for, uh, for after church this morning. 
every single one of us, we are going to have, uh, we're going to see things through different lenses in our life. This is true, obviously, in a, uh, in a physical sense, but it's true in every aspect of our lives. Um, often the primary lens through, or one of the primary lenses through which we uh, view the world is dependent on what has been told to us throughout our history. Um, I was watching a documentary this past week on uh, the end of World War II, and particularly, my mind was drawn to some pretty uh, horrific images that I saw uh, of World War II being fought in the Pacific. One of the most haunting and uh, compelling things I saw uh, uh, throughout the end of this uh, documentary were images of Japanese women who were uh, throwing their babies off, off of cliffs and then throwing themselves off of cliffs rather than being captured by the US military. They had been told that if they were captured that their children would be forced into slavery, that there would be abuse and that ultimately they would die gruesome, torturous deaths at the hands of the, uh, at the, hands of the Americans. And rather than facing this, uh, they would rather face death through throwing themselves off cliffs uh, which were available to them. And all of this happened because their lens had been shaped by what they had been told by the propaganda of, uh, of the day. So what you have been taught throughout your own history, it will influence significantly the lens through which you view the world. But over the past few years, there's also been a heightened amount of discussion around how your uh, lens will be influenced by different personality types. Uh, this is helpful in an, effort to, uh, in an effort for people to understand the lens through other people view the world uh, when it comes to their personality. So you might have heard of things such as Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, the disc profile and others, which have become more prominent in understanding different people's lenses of how they view the world. What we've been taught in our history affects our lens, our personality affects our lens, but then of course the culture that we currently live in today significantly affects the lens through which which we view things in our life. We live in a hyper-individualistic society where someone's truth is considered their truth, an idea that doesn't even seem to really make sense to me. We live in a society where materialism is at an all-time high and we're not even aware of it at times. We live in a society where impressing others, it's been called the disease of impressing, is revealed through uh, obsessions with shopping and social media. And so all of these things, your history, your personality, your culture that you live in, All of these things affect the lens through which you view the world around you. All of us will come to life with a certain lens, but then we will also come to the Bible with a certain lens. And this depends on our pre-existing theological position, it depends on our introduction to the Bible, it depends on a whole heap of different factors. But if we as Christians believe that Jesus has risen again from the dead, and that because of this he proved that he was fully God and fully man, then the way that we approach the Bible Bible uh, should be influenced most of all by what Jesus says our lens should be. When we get to Luke 24, 
Jesus himself at this point has risen from the dead. The women have found the tomb empty. They've encountered some angelic beings and they've gone and spoken to the disciples about what they've seen. But they don't seem to believe the ladies who are telling them about the risen Jesus. Immediately following this, uh, this uh, telling of the disciples, we find two of Jesus' followers and they are taking this 11-kilometer journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus and suddenly... Jesus sneaks up on them. So as we see here in Luke 24, Jesus has at this point risen from the dead. So the greatest moment in all of history has now taken place, which scripture has been leading to. And here we just read that there are two of these followers of Jesus. One of them at least was named Cleopas, who we know about. And he, uh, and these followers of Jesus are taking the 11 kilometer journey, uh, which is a little over a three hour walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And suddenly Jesus sneaks up on these two disciples. They don't recognize Jesus for some unknown reason. All that we're told is that they were kept from recognizing Jesus. And it seems that there was something deliberate that took place which, uh, which caused uh, them to, to be unable to recognize Jesus. Maybe his face was covered. Maybe there was something that God prevented them from seeing in Jesus. Maybe Jesus had slightly changed features, uh, which, uh, which meant that they were unable to, uh, to see him after his resurrection. We just don't know what the case was. But these two who are clearly ignorant of the, uh, of the resurrection that has now taken place. And so Jesus responds to them by calling them foolish because they can't understand what, uh, what has been going on and the fact that Jesus has now risen again from the dead. And then in verse 27, we see Jesus have this Bible study with these two followers. What Jesus does is he takes these followers of his through the Old Testament and we see these words used, Moses or the law and the prophets. This is understood by Jews as the entire Old Testament. And Jesus shows these two disciples all of the different ways that the Old Testament was leading up to Jesus and pointing to his life, his death and his resurrection. The genres that we often give to the Old Testament are quite expansive, but the genres that ancient Jews gave to the Bible, or sorry, to their Old Testament, were simply Moses or the law and the, uh, and the prophets, which is everything else. Uh, what is effectively happening here is that Jesus is taking his followers through a Bible study to show how the whole Bible is pointing to him and that he is the lens in which we view the entire Bible. All of Scripture should be read through the lens of Jesus, and that's his point here as he is speaking to these two disciples. Now, for some of you here today, that might be a bit of a strange concept, reading uh, the entire Bible, including the Old Testament, through the lens of Jesus. I mean, there are those passages from the Old Testament that clearly point to Jesus. There are those prophecies that that were clearly talking about Jesus and his birth and his life and his death and resurrection. Um, for us uh, here today, it's fairly easy for us to see Jesus revealed uh, through the New Testament and be able to put on a Jesus lens as we read the New Testament. We see the name Jesus coming up a tremendous amount uh, clearly through the New Testament. But how is Jesus the lens through which we view the Old Testament? 
How do we even uh, put on that lens to be able to read the Old Testament? Why does it matter if we use this lens? And what does it mean for us here today? Today, I want to show you three different ways that Jesus is demonstrated as the lens through which we view all of Scripture. It's these three different ways. Firstly, that Jesus is patterned, Jesus is promised, and Jesus is present. So firstly, Jesus is patterned throughout the Old Testament. There are certain patterns of Jesus revealed constantly throughout the Old Testament. Now, when we use this word patterned, what we mean is that there are certain images that reflect who Jesus is and what he has done for humanity. We see patterns of Jesus through events like the flood and the ark. So it's clear that Jesus is is revealed through Noah as a better saviour who opens salvation for the entire world. We see Jesus patterned through the Passover and the Red Sea. The Passover points to Jesus in that it's uh, it's the blood of him as the lamb which washes over our sins and protects us. The wilderness and the promised land. The promised land points to Jesus in that he leads us into a new kingdom better than what we've experienced before. The exile and return. The exile and return demonstrates the invitation of Jesus to come back into his love and righteousness. The kingdom and the kings, the kingdom and the kings point to a better kingdom and a greater king than any that Israel was able to experience. The prophets and the priests, Jesus himself is our prophet who revealed God fully to us. And he is our priest who connected us back into relationship with God. And then there's the temple, its sacrifices and rituals. The temple and sacrifices, they were fulfilled through Jesus who gave himself as the ultimate sacrifice for all. So there are patterns of Jesus revealed through all of the Old Testament. He is revealed and it's up to us to do the work to see the ways in which he is, uh, in which he is patterned and revealed. The book of Hebrews, it does a really helpful job in uh, more than any other book, giving evidence to this fact that Jesus is patterned throughout the Old Testament. Constantly throughout the book of Hebrews, we see that Jesus is patterned throughout the Old Testament. Remember that it's Jesus himself himself who is teaching this here on the road to Emmaus with these two uh, with these two disciples he is saying that he is revealed fully through Old Testament scripture which is why it's important for us to see him patterned there a little while ago, I began reading a, a book which is uh, by really a really helpful pastor in a lot of ways, um, but unfortunately, he came up with this uh, not-so-helpful thought. It was his belief that you can get rid of most of the books of the Bible, except for the Gospel and, uh, and 1 Corinthians 15, and what you are left with is all that's uh, necessary to make faith irresistible once again. Now, he made a fairly compelling case, and I empathised with some of his points, but he had missed something essential, and that is that Jesus himself is revealed through all Scripture. He is the lens through which we read all of the Bible. There are patterns of him which we see throughout the Old Testament, and it's only when we see Jesus patterned through these Old Testament Scriptures that we begin to understand the true power of the Gospel. When we see more of Jesus through the Old Testament, we see more of Jesus. Now, although Jesus is 
patterned throughout the Old Testament, it's important to not find him in places where he isn't. As an example of this uh, theological stream, it's called theological typology, uh, this can be taken to the extreme if, for example, you look for Jesus throughout every single word and verse in the book of Song of Songs. I've heard a sermon series where this pastor tried to reveal where Christ is revealed in every single verse in the book Song of Songs. It was quite strange to hear, and it seemed uh, like this guy was taking most of these verses out of context from what was originally written. Song of Songs is this romantic love letter between two lovers. Um, it's a celebration of what is supposed to be experienced through, uh, through marriage. And if you try and link verse by verse back to Christ, you're going to be doing some ex uh, exegetical gymnastics to be able to get back there. In saying that, when we look at the book holistically, it's always a helpful reminder to understand that Jesus is the groom and that the church is a bride. Jesus desires relationship with his church to be a pure, holy, and beautiful church. Some of that can be revealed through Song of Songs, but let's also read the books of the Old Testament as they were originally intended and not read things that aren't there. Certain Bible teachers have taught this in profound ways, which have revealed Scripture to me more and more. The late, uh, the late great Timothy Keller is a great example of this, who said this about Christ being truer and better. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden. His garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience has imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing where he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all when God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, Now we know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love for me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord who mediates the new covenant." Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, struck with the rod of God's justice, now giving us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job. He's a truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. <laughs> Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but uh, but lost the ultimate uh, heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life, who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, but said, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. 
Jesus is the true and better Jonah who is cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's the real Passover lamb. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. And so constantly we see Jesus patterned again and again throughout the Old Testament. So we see Jesus is patterned, but he is also promised. This is the thing that most of us in, uh, in the church would be able to see of Jesus revealed through the Old Testament. We're, we're aware of the fact that Jesus was uh, promised and that he fulfilled pro- uh, prophecy all throughout the, uh, throughout the Old Testament. But I have found it astounding just how much Jesus is actually promised and prophesied throughout Scripture and then how he fulfilled every single one of these promises about him. There's one scholar named J. Barton Payne who has found as many as 574 verses in the Old Testament that somehow point to or describe the, uh, the, uh, the coming Messiah. Alfred Edersheim uh, found 456 Old Testament verses referring to the uh, Messiah of his times and conservatively, a conservative guess, would have Jesus fulfilling at least 300 prophecies in his earthly ministry. Usually it's gauged somewhere between 330 and 380. In 2 Peter 1 verses 19 to to 21, Peter details that one of the primary reasons that we today believe in Jesus is because of all of these promises that were made about him throughout the Old Testament and which he fulfilled. That's one of the primary evidences of trusting Jesus according to, uh, to Peter. But when we come to the evidence uh, around Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, uh, prophecies, some people have been quick to say, well, anyone could have fulfilled all of these prophecies that were, uh, that were listed. A professor named Peter W. Stoner, he was, a, uh, was chairman of the departments of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena City College, and he was the chairman of the scientific, uh, science division at Westmont College. And in his book, Science Speaks, Professor Stoner outlined the mathematical probability of one person in the first century fulfilling just eight of the most clear and most straightforward uh, messianic prophecies. Professor Stoner found that to have fulfilled just eight of the, prof- uh, the promises and prophecies of Jesus, the, uh, the, uh, the likelihood of that was just one in 100 quadrillion. In case you're wondering, there was a $1.6 billion jackpot in, uh, in October 2018, and you had a 1 in 302 million uh, uh, chance of odds of winning. Stoner, he went on to calculate the probability of one person fulfilling 48 prophecies, which ended up being 1 in, uh, in 10 to the power of 157. I don't know what number that is. I'm not very good at maths. I know it's a very, very big number. In case you're wondering whether Professor Stoner's math was wrong, H. Harold uh, uh, Haltzer, PhD of the American Scientific Affiliation, wrote this of, uh, of Stoner's book. The manuscript for Science Speaks has been carefully reviewed by a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation members and by the Executive Council of the same group and has been found in general to be dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented. 
The mathematical analysis included is based upon principles of probability which are thoroughly sound and Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and convincing way. And so for Jesus to have fulfilled not just eight, not just 48, but at the very least 300 prophecies and promises about him demonstrates that what he was saying about himself and who his disciples recognised him to be was true. One of the primary reasons that the apostles were willing to give up their life so readily when it came to Jesus is the fact that they saw the promises of the Messiah throughout the Old Testament revealed in Jesus. Jesus is the one who is promised on at least 300 different occasions throughout the Old Testament and it's because of this that we ourselves can have an increased assurance of our faith in Jesus for us today. So Jesus is patterned, Jesus is promised, but Jesus is also present. Seeing Jesus' patterned and promised throughout the Old Testament is maybe not something too difficult for many of us to be able to see, but it might be more strange or difficult for us to get our heads around the fact that there are certain points where Jesus himself is present through the Old Testament. It can be easy for us to simply think that Jesus came simply when the, uh, at the point of the New Testament, um, when the Gospel accounts were written, and when he was uh, and when he was born now a lot of the time we would never say this ourselves and yet through our language sometimes we can uh, unintentionally say that Jesus himself wasn't present throughout uh, throughout the Old Testament there's been a theological viewpoint called, uh, called modalism through much of Christian history. And this teaches that the way that the Trinity has operated throughout history has been that before Jesus, there was the Father. During Jesus' lifetime, there was the Son. And then after Jesus, there was the Holy Spirit. Now, although most people who are Christians don't believe in this explicitly, it can be easy for us to uh, frame our way of thinking uh, into this, and which can, be, uh, which can form our language when we're trying to describe something as complex as the Trinity. Some of you may have, uh, may have heard this illustration used before, that the Trinity is like ice, water, and steam. So the Father is like ice, it can become water, which is like the sun, and then it can become steam, which is like the, the Holy Spirit. Now, although well-meaning, this illustration can quickly result in people believing that God was operating in different modes throughout history, rather than acknowledging the fact that God is, uh, that the Trinity really is three persons all existing all at once all for eternity and the reason that this matters is that Jesus did not come into being just when he was born here on the earth rather the son was fully operating as God even before he came here to the earth the I am in whom Abraham rejoiced was Jesus in John 8, 56, we see that. The Lord who motivated Moses was Christ. We see that in, 11, in, uh, in Hebrews eleven twenty six. The Redeemer who brought them out of Egypt was Jesus. See that in Jude 5. The rock in the wilderness was Christ. We see that in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. The king of Isaiah's temple vision was the sun. We see that in John 12, 40 to 41. And there are so many other, uh, other occasions where we see that Jesus Christ himself was present throughout the Old Testament. 
Glenn uh, Scriven, Scrivener uh, says this of Jesus in the, Old Test, uh, in the Old Testament and throughout the entire Bible. Jesus unites the Bible. He is not absent from the Old Testament, sitting on the bench, awaiting his fourth quarter winning play. He is the player, coach, manager, directing all things. Throughout the Old Testament, he is the one and only mediator of God Most High, marching purposefully toward his own incarnation. Jesus is Lord. He always has been. Jesus is the lens. He is the lens through which you and I read the entire Bible. And the reason that we do this is because this is what Jesus demonstrated himself when he was on the road to Emmaus with these two followers of him. Jesus is patterned, Jesus is promised, and Jesus is present. Throughout the entire Bible, Jesus himself is the lens. Jesus is the lens through which we read the Bible. But it's also Jesus, he is also the lens through which we let the Bible read us. When we read the pages of Scripture and they speak to us, there is a Jesus lens that actually comes back to us in how we read it. So yes, Jesus is the lens in how we read the Bible, but Jesus is also the lens on how the Bible reads us. Let me explain what I mean as the team comes up right now. Earlier on this year, we preached through the book of, of Titus. Um, the sermon I preached through this series was all about the character of a, uh, of a leader um, and how that it's uh, absolutely paramount for a leader to be of good character. There are clear instructions about what a leader is to be and also what a leader is not to be. Over the past couple of months at the same time, as I shared at the start of this series, I've been going on a deep dive into the book of uh, Leviticus, which is a bit of a roller coaster. <laughs> if you're not aware, Leviticus is primarily made up of laws given to the Israelite people after the exodus out of slavery at Mount Sinai. Um, throughout this reading, I've been increasingly shown the, the righteousness of God and his desire for his people, including me, to be righteous. And so there's two of the things I've been doing over the past little while, but once again, at the same time, through some other reading I've been doing, it's primarily been uh, about self-awareness and putting into practice things that Jesus calls us to do. And so when you combine these three different things, preaching about how leaders need high levels of character, reading through Leviticus and realising my own unrighteousness next to God, and then going through books about raising self-awareness and discovering all of the things that are not in my heart and life, with those three things uh, combined, I have been left feeling pretty hard on myself at times. And there have been times over the past couple of months where I have just felt exhausted because I just don't feel like I measure up in different ways. Now, although I'm making it sound bad, there have also, it's also been a really refining time in my life for me where God's revealed things in my life that shouldn't be there. But my reaction, unfortunately, because I didn't have my Jesus lens on reading the Bible, has left me feeling deflated and a bit guilty, a bit ashamed at times. 
And then earlier on this week, I was meeting with, uh, with someone who's called my professional supervisor, and I was talking through some of this stuff, just some of the things that I was feeling in my heart and feeling the way that I wasn't measuring up in different things. I was just pointing out some of the different areas in my life where I was feeling these things. And the response that I was expecting and hoping for, because this guy's getting paid, uh, was that he might give me some response that would show me how I actually get better in these areas. I mean, that's kind of his job to tell me these things. But that's not what I got. (laughs) Rather, I got a very gentle, kind and loving correction slash rebuke. He just reminded me in a really beautiful way that, yeah, some of these things might exist in my life. But he just reminded me that I am loved by God. I am valued by God. I am enough for God. And God is for me. And that he wants the best for me. He reminded me that God's not angry with me. And that more than anything, he just has grace and love for me. Essentially, he just helped me put, up, put back on my Jesus lens and reframe everything that I've been learning and reading and helped me put on the lens of Jesus that says, Jesus loves you and he has grace for you. After catching up with my supervisor, I sat down and I read through Romans 3 to 5 once again, which teaches about the fact that none of us measure up in the slightest to God's character and nature, but there is grace enough to bridge that gap and such a love from God that means that even through my own mistakes and stuff going on inside, I'm never going to be separated from the love of God because of what Jesus himself has done. I don't need to feel guilty or shame-filled anymore. I need to rest in the love and grace demonstrated for me through Jesus and allow that to form and change me. So earlier on this week, I put on my Jesus lens once again And I was now allowing the Bible to read me or to speak to me through that lens, a lens of grace and love. Now, for some of you here this morning, you may need to you may need uh, to read the Bible, particularly maybe the Old Testament through a different lens. And we've spoken at length on how to do that. But for some of you, you might need to allow what you read to shape you through a different lens once again. You might need to do exactly what I have done and allow the things that is speaking to you throughout Scripture to be spoken by and through the love and grace that was demonstrated through Jesus. As you read through the Bible, allow Jesus to be this lens through which Scripture speaks to you. Jesus demonstrated that he loves you deeply. He has more grace for you than you know. He wants you to encounter him personally through his word, but through the lens of Jesus. Can we stand together, please? In a minute, we're going to be uh, taking communion as uh, taking communion together. And as we do this, what we are doing is we are pointing ourselves to Jesus once again. We are reminding ourselves of the center and the heart of our faith which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's because of the death of Jesus that we are now able to be pronounced 
righteous in front of God and it's through his resurrection that we are offered new life. And so in a minute after this, uh, after this next song, we'll take communion together as a church. But during this moment right now, if you have been struggling with the grace or the love of Jesus, or in some way, maybe you just haven't had your Jesus lens on, as we sing these next couple of songs and as we reflect on the, uh, the elements before us right now, I just invite you to invite the Holy Spirit to change the things in your heart where you have maybe been viewing God in the wrong way. If you've been viewing God as vindictive or mean or someone who is, uh, who is simply out to, uh, to get you, just remember that God already loves you so much. You are his amazing child who he has grace for and love for, no matter what is going on, no matter what's going on in your life. Let's sing together.